Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. And I'm Sechid Yilmaz. And we're very happy to welcome to the podcast today Dr. Hanan Hamed, who is Associate Professor and Director of Middle East Studies at Texas Christian University. Uh, as many of our listeners may know, Dr. Hamad's book, Industrial Sexuality, Gender, Urbanization, and Social Transformation in Egypt, came out from Texas University Press in 2016 and has received many awards, including but not limited to an honorable mention for the 2017 Arab American Book Award in Nonfiction, the National Women's Studies Association 2017 Sarah A. Whaley Book Award, the 2017 Middle East Political Economy Book Prize, the 2017 Middle East Women's Studies Book Award, and uh, we just learned that it will also be honorable mention for the 2017 Roger Owen Book Award. So this is clearly really kind of a groundbreaking book, and we're, we're so excited to have you here to talk about it today. Hanan, I read your book with great interest, and I would like to start our conversation to basically help our audience to understand what um, Al-Mahalla Al-Kubra looked like in the time that you're writing about around 1920s and 1930s, you're talking in your book about a big industrial shift and which basically changed the demographics and social uh, layers um, of the community. So can you please tell us a little bit of like what was Al-Mahalla before 1920s, before the industrial shift and afterwards? Sure. Al-Mahalla uh, al-Kubra has been always one of the largest urban centers in Egypt. And it has been always famous with uh, a textile industry, handloom weaving. Since 17th century, Al-Mahal Al-Kubra was uh, the biggest importer of silk textile throughout the Ottoman Empire. So it has been a thriving urban and industrial place. And this actually has something also to do with people's sense of pride. Even in um, folk culture there, they would say, Hawi wala mahallawi meaning you can actually handle the scale of the Hawi, but the, the, the scale of Mahalawi would blow your mind. By second half 19th century, like most industries across the Middle East was suffering from uh, the coercive integration into global market. So the competition that the Mahalla product of textile uh, with the cheap and probably more appealing textile uh, coming from Europe uh, was very harsh. You see decline. And at the same time, you also see um, persistent attempt to modernize the industry, to adapt to changes in the economy. Also, at the same time, 19th century Egypt was also witnessing big effort from the state to centralize itself. So the state presence would be increasingly there. And probably the most negative impact that Mahalla experienced was under Muhammad Ali, uh, when Muhammad Ali reworked the entire economic structure, actually for some time turned uh, people of Mahalla from industrialists into workers for his own state-owned factories. So 19th century was hard time, and this was translated not only the decline of the production of the city, but also uh, demographic decline. Uh, many people of Mahalla would leave the town towards early 20th century as also part of reviving, uh, adapting to these new challenges, and Mahalla was coming back as uh, a very important textile center. Uh, this was before the coming of the large factory. 
the the title of the book is industrial sexuality, right? So we're thinking about this period, the interwar period, um, the coming of the large factory to Al Mahal Al Kobra. Maybe you know you could just flesh out for us what is an industrial sexuality. The new coming of large capital uh, structure. Uh, started in Mahalla in late 19th century with having large ginning factories that very much uh, meant to press cotton to export it to Europe. So on a season base, you have uh, newly immigrants coming to town, mostly poor rural population. Many of them were women would work into the town. However, that pattern would drastically accelerate with the establishment of uh, the, it, it's a compound. I call it the company and I stick to the way people say it as Sharika. It, it's a large industrial compound that with continuing success, keep hiring more people, either the urban poor or rural population from throughout the country very much coming to live. So on that backdrop, you have large number of women working in industry. And also you have large number of single men coming to live and to be subject to new types of discipline, etc. So that rapid change not only means like you have larger number of population in the town, but also the social dynamic will be completely changing. Notions of morality, uh, what is uh, accepted sex, would be reworked all the time. And, and all, of course, also gender relations. Hanan, one of the most important findings and, and discussion in your book is about the ways in which like manhood, masculinity, uh, womanhood, femininity has been like constructed in this in industrial transforming context. Um, about this particular period in the context of Egypt, but also larger Middle East studies is dealing with like changing conceptions of gender, like making of a new woman, new man, new notions of marriage, family, and so on and so forth. But this context, that transformation from an, an, an peasant background into an, an working class background and, and, and new sorts of like urban context with an industrial um, component that is offering and different reading of a new man that has been very much defined by the inner struggles and challenges, unevenness of capitalism that offers in everyday lives uh, people. So can you please like uh, tell us a little bit more about what is it to be an, an factory man in Al-Mahalla and what it means masculinity in this context? Thank you for the question. It's a very uh, complicated one. Um, when we talk and hear about the new man and the new woman in uh, modern Egypt, we are very much reading literature penned by the modern intellectuals, constructing their imagined new Egyptian man as educated, as uh, well-mannered, quiet voices, not violent, and very much sanitizing in their imagination what could be the good uh, Egyptian male subject. And it's not very far from this also, uh, the new woman. And both of them should cooperate in building the new so- the new family as a unit of the new society. This uh, literature would resonate very well also with uh, state efforts to control the society through uh, or, or imposing this image of what could be uh, the new uh, Egyptian subject that's highly productive, highly disciplined, uh, highly nationalist. However, the, the, the notion of the state 
that I'm, I'm, of course, I'm not inventing it. Actually, I'm borrowing it from well-established literature. That the state is a web of relations between different institutes. So those in, web of institutes and individuals, they can pen laws and they can put literature on print. But when it comes to practice, you can find so many variation of interpreting these laws and so many variation of applying these laws. At the same time, what I'm trying to do in this work actually is to bring the agency of those people who theoretically were subject to these laws and these practices. Actually, they have great deal of agency in interpreting these laws, applying it selectively, inviting the state and selectively excluding the state or avoiding the state effort. What happened with industrialization uh, or that new structure of uh, the modern large factory, you find people coming from everywhere, particularly men, priding themselves like all the time throughout history that being able to earn their living, being able to have craft and they get paid for it. So that's a great deal. This throughout the history and actually now they also one way or another, they are exposed to uh, the notion that they are part of the this modern effort. You, you are dealing with an modern machines. You are dealing with modern factories. And this particular factory get the pride of being nationalist and part of economic uh, independence. But on the, on the ground, actually, you find this men in large number being subject to authority that was very much different from the type of uh, the employer that they uh, had dealt with either in workshop level or in uh, the field. They don't really know the employer. They don't know this board of the factory or those shareholders. They know uh, the supervisors and they know uh, the hierarchy among these uh, supervisors. Again, it's to all these discourses that you might see in the print culture about those educated, well-mannered mannered men. You find those affandia on the ground. While they are introducing themselves as a modern, they are adopting the same traditional coercive method in even larger scale, particularly violence. You are, you are not training workers. You are beating up workers. You are not encouraging uh, or make it incentive or understandable why workers have to show on the shop floor in time. You are actually beating them up to show up in time. Uh, making them productive, it means uh, you are subject to discipline that actually prevents you from using the bathroom during work hours. So having workers dealing with this forms of coercion to become the, the productive, they find themselves their sense of masculinity here would be redefined. So part of their sense of masculinity, how I'm keeping my job at the same time, what to do with this humiliation in every second. So they come with their ways to defend their sense of manhood and masculinity. Some of these ways could be violent, and this is very much as much as a violence come top down from supervisors to workers. Also, you find it from workers against supervisors and also among workers themselves. Because part of the strategy is that how to empower ourselves as workers. And here, this kind of, sort of challenges the sense of class. Like once you are working in factories, large number, you become a working class and you, have, and you develop the working class conscious. 
What I'm challenging here, actually, it's, uh, it's not everything for resistance. Lots of what they do is very much tools of survival. So some of the tools of survival is to empower ourselves as groups. Probably we are coming from the same village. So how to defend each other and to be there uh, for each other. Also, they adopted the same hierarchy as a way to perform their masculinity. So as they are victim of the hierarchy that supervisors are abusive to them, they could be abusive to younger workers, newer, newer workers, etc. So here you find the concept of masculinity and performance of, as- of masculinity right. work it and rework it against each other. It's not against femininity mm-hmm. or against women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the like, most interesting things about like this division between Al-Mahale uh, being from Al-Mahale and being from the factory and the ways in which how these very like disadvantaged groups, especially men, position towards each other. Um, so the, the kind of like sense of unity or class consciousness has been organized and, and informed by so many different dynamics that comes out from your research. That, that's absolutely right. And it's always, there is a great deal of fluidity in the right. meaning that uh, like group of workers would actually support each other collectively, regardless where they are coming from, whether they are newcomers or actually coming from people of Al-Mahalla. They cooperate together against the administration, which actually would be would fit very well in our Marxist notion of class conscious. Other times, it is the opposite. They are fighting for uh, their sense of manhood against each other. So you find groups coming from certain villages fighting against Mahallawiya because also people of Mahalla, Mahallawiya workers, it was benefit for themselves to distance themselves as urbanite. So they are more superior than, even if they have to work for the company, they are way more superior than those crude, uh, quote unquote, crude peasants. And also they wanna show their commitment to their community, to Mahalawi community, that yes, we work with those newcomers, but we also, uh, we are still in the same camp of Mahalawiya. So sometimes actually uh, Mahalawiya workers were way more abusive to their colleagues just to perform their commitment to their own community as they understood it. So one of the things the book does is to really take apart some of our assumptions about masculinity or the new man in interwar Egypt. You also really take apart some of the assumptions we have about the new woman. So I wanted to sort of ask you to to expand on that. How would you describe the new industrial femininity? Thank you for the the question, but just before I try to engage with it, I want to add to the previous question about masculinity, that uh, performing masculinity and concept of masculinity, etc., was not always through violence. And uh, this is one of things that makes me always concerned about the perception of uh, the two chapters about masculinity, that uh, violence is very kind of sort of prevalent. Right. And um, the way that I saw people performing their masculinity. But this very much because of the nature of sources I'm using. I'm using court records. And of course, when people are in love or friendship, they they don't end up in the court. So uh, this is something that I see it in, in sources that very much talks about incidents of violence or something goes wrong. Uh, so I just want to highlight that violence is, is still was not the norm. Uh, there are actually a great deal of moments that people would bond even their understanding of masculinity and they created some space where to lend each other support as workers, as inhabitants of the same city. 
I talk a little bit about coffee shops or mm-hmm. actually tea stands where they consume the, some low quality traditional beverage, uh, alcoholic beverages called booza. It's very close to word booze. Mm-hmm. And also when they exchange ideas and advices about how to save money, how to get married, and also how to be good to your wife. Right. Even when I talk a lot about violence, it, it was not still the norm. I think the book makes it very clear. I mean, you, your narrative makes it very clear that the state likes order and it also likes disorder because the sources surfacing the ways in which state engages with the disorder in the name of order. So, but I think your mention of these bondings, like sharing an, a difficult life together, I think it really comes out really uh, nice and that shows that, that fluidity. So I think that's one of the contributions that you're making. So welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. I'm here today with Sachil Yamaz and Hanan Hamad discussing industrial sexuality, uh, which is a wonderful new book Dr. Hamad has just published. We've talked a lot about the constructions of the new man and different versions of masculinity that surfaced in the sort of industrializing and urbanizing Mahal al-Kubra of the interwar period. Um, so I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the new womanhood that emerges also in that context. So often when we talk about the new woman, we're also talking about the kind of bourgeois subjects that are described in the press. And you obviously bring up a very different vision of what a kind of new womanhood looks like. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, Feminist movement and uh, discursive field of the new woman, we're talking about the educated uh, woman who can manage her house or her family in a more modern and more rational way. Uh, Feminists who engage in that, we're talking about the educated women and uh, the importance of education. And I would say, actually, one of the biggest achievements that they have was like, everybody embraced the idea of education for men and women. Actually, education, particularly for lower class women, was huge ideal. The problem is it was not attainable. It was not available. However, you have always pressure of turning women into a productive subject, into even on the family level, somebody who can go to work and bring uh, something to the table. With these changes going on in the Egyptian society at large and Mahala society in particular, you find opening jobs for women to work in factories, either in the company or to work in workshops. Uh, That is becoming actually now uh, getting into mechanization more than it used to be. And also you find these fantastic entrepreneurial women who saw their opportunity. I'm talking about working class, uh, poor women who saw opportunity of uh, the demographic changes around them. They took advantage of the intensive demands for housing and cheap foodstuff and other services provided to uh, the newcomers, uh, mostly workers. So you find women actually empowering themselves and empowering their families through work either industrial workers or becoming poor landlady. And when I say poor here, because uh, those landladies are different from 
what traditionally has been known to be house owners, they are still poor. They live in these houses. And even these houses actually sometimes, particularly if you follow the state regulation in terms of uh, housing construction rules, etc., sometimes it doesn't really qualify as a house. But it's a place for people to, to sleep. Those women were very, very active uh, economically. And sometimes that would reflect into their position inside their own families, inside their own households, in a very, very positive way. You find uh, these poor landladies having all power over their tenants, these males, single male workers living in their household. And of course, being able to bring something to the table would empower uh, your position in the family. However, we have to be very cautious about what extent that power was. It's still those women were very much look at themselves as either housewives or their plan is to be housewives. Their plan is to be mothers. Sometimes, uh, particularly for industrial workers, uh, sometimes actually they would, once they get married, they would uh, quit working. The company would actually encourage this for some times or not to hire married women. However, they had to drop this and to accept and to encourage married married women to stay. So the new woman here is very much economically productive, socially in negotiation always with different patriarchal forces. You don't see women often appear in protest movements. However, they are very supportive of it. Sometimes uh, they don't engage much with organizations or organizing uh, unions, etc. However, they would support calls of strikes. Sometimes they send petitions. So they they play roles to empower to empower workers generally. Although there is huge social limits, how to engage in organizational work, unionizations, etc. You know, this is a this is a contribution to a much bigger debate about what the outcomes of industrialization and wage work are for women. You have a really nice phrase here, you invoke the phrase the modernization of inequality. And through this kind of fine grained detail of showing how even as women sometimes profit uh, and are empowered, you know, become business owners or providers of services in this new economy, at the same time, they're still, as you say, in negotiation with a variety of patriarchal forces. So this case can really help us to think about the story that we tell about how entry into the wage workforce is always a kind of liberating factor for women. It's actually quite a bit more complicated than that. It is. And actually, uh, these capitalist nationalist forces very much embraced the gender hierarchy. And when I talk about modernizing inequality, because while they are hiring men and women in large numbers and encouraging women, particularly poor women, to go to work at the factory, they try to keep them in positions that are lower paid and more time consuming. So they were very much keeping that gender hierarchy inside the factory. You don't see women in supervisory positions. All the supervisors, even in factory uh, on female-only workshops, are going to be males. Uh, you find some women who, whose position there is like they get paid more, but very much they are not blue-collar workers. You find them like social workers, a few social workers, etc. Other than that, when it comes to female blue-collar workers, they are always 
head lowers, they always kept in uh, lower positions. Yeah, and we, you know, we're still familiar with this phenomenon that capitalism uses the divisions that are already there for its own means ends. Absolutely, this is the case very much. Can I just add something sure. briefly about the women thing? It actually struck me when I read the contract for establishing the company as was published in al uh, waqaa al-Rasmiya. Huda Sha'rawi, the biggest name in Egyptian feminist movement, was one of those founder of the company. Wow. So it really... So even having a major feminist on your board, as it were, doesn't, doesn't change the distribution of labor? Not at all. I think uh, she was a highly nationalist and she was very much into this elitist feminist movement that often detached from lower class men and women. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about how the new production relations and workplace relationships um, changing meanings attached to new men, masculinity, as well as womanhood and femininity in different contexts, which kind of offers that there is a new sexuality informed by this circumstances and as the title goes industrial sexuality it's at the very heart of your narrative and the book how like sex is very a big part of everyday life can you please um help us to evaluate and think through with you new notions of new sexuality Part of what Egypt was going through on the discursive level, which it translated into state laws, when it comes to uh, sexuality, is defining what is the proper sex. Right. And the proper sex is between a man and a woman who are in a heterosexual marriage relationship. This uh, definition that was actually departure from reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, The society was, I would say, more tolerant to different types of uh, sexual practices. Right. It is not the nowadays notion of uh, homosexual or gay, but uh, the, the society was very much tolerant, including uh, tolerating sex workers or commercial sex. Mm-hmm. The rapid it changes, so you have the state presence in the daily life more and more. And you have this discourse about what is accepted when it comes to proper sex and what is rejected. At the same time, you have also people engaging with these roles and with these discourses the way that they want to keep going with their life. Mm -hmm. The particular changes in the demographic changes in Al-Mahalla and particular type of urbanization that happened, you have large number of people, strangers, living together in a way that shaked the traditional makeup of the society. You have indigenous Mahalawi or people of the town and you have newcomers. And then you have many boarding houses that provided accommodation to large number of newcomers. And so you have a very small dirty rooms actually, just as a sleeping place for large number of men from different ages. Uh, many of them were still children. Mm-hmm. And also you have large number of single men living in households of uh, women. So you have a great deal of tension that's going on. So what happens actually that you have the exposure of these variety of practices. And you have that struggle between individuals, communities, and the state over what is proper here. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, you, you don't find this kind of sort of clear cut that you find it in print culture championed by FND about what is the proper sex. Even the state, again, as a web of institutes, individuals, 
their interpretation of the rules and what's accepted is always changing in practices. So what you find is the society sometimes tolerates or keeps its tolerance towards a variety of sexual practices. And sometimes they would invite the state to intervene to moderate some uh, relationships. And the state in doing this also is inconsistent. For example, one of the practices that nobody actually would, would, would say morally accepts was uh, child abuse, sexual abuse. Due to the intensive population, you find children had to sleep with adult men. And you have also children left out in homes with adult strangers uh, living in the same space. So you have the tendency to cover up because uh, even in the sense of guilt towards the victim, the parent of the victim, but sometimes you invite the state. And here the Afandi judges, they are mostly Afandis, they would be appalled by the practice and they want to live up to uh, the legal ideals that this is not accepted. However, if the abuser is a rich man, not uh, a working class man, you find a great deal of tolerance and accommodation. And it's not saying that this is a good practice or it's okay, but actually it is rejecting any testimony coming from supported the victim to support the victim and dismissing uh, the victim's testimonies and giving huge support and acknowledgement to whatever the rich man would say. Uh, and very much they would get, get away with whatever they do. But I think it's very important to attend to this notion that even these kind of newly normative ideas about what is the good sex um, were not uniformly applied and that they were enmeshed in these kind of relations of power that you're describing in this space and that some people were actually held accountable for those new ideals and other people weren't. Very much this true. And... Um, when it comes even to uh, commercial sex, uh, this is something that nationalists picked up as uh, colonial filth or something that distends the face of modern Egypt coming with uh, the colonial power. And you see this again. Uh, it's kind of sort of Cairo-centric, uh, mostly also Afandia discourses. And this detached from the reality that commercial sex has been accommodated throughout major urban centers in Egypt. And it was the same case in Mahalla. As a state going with that nationalist discourse that eliminates commercial sex, and then you ban, uh, you stop license, you ban the brothel, and then you outlaw eventually uh, at the beginning of 1950s. However, you find the, the capitalist forces using that kind of sort of traditional accommodation of commercial sex as a way to explain why workers having horrific conditions of life, of uh, health, uh, why workers actually, the, the, the company would, would make false claims that, yes, our workers have disease, but these diseases are sexually transmitted because they, rather than spending their income, their good income supposedly, uh, on their good meals and hygienic life, actually they take this money and they spend it on uh, hookers. And this is how the problem is having sex workers in the town, not actually the problem is not uh, those workers are very poorly paid. They work for longer hours in non-hygienic uh, workshops. Right. And many of them are coming in from other parts of the country outside of the traditional sort of social structures that make good sex possible. 
in terms of marriage and the family? Interestingly, actually, for that false claim from the company against its worker was, was totally false. Uh, most workers tended to get married early, going with their tradition, the rural tradition. Uh, some of them visited the brothel, it's true, but when the company itself screened its entire workforce, uh, which is about 21,000 workers, they found only 60 cases of uh, sexually transmitted diseases, only 60 cases out of 21,000. At the same time, almost all workers have, each of them had several diseases caused by bad nutrition and non-hygienic living and working places. Most workers had a combination of ankylostoma, uh, bilharzia, dysentaria, which was very common, and all these are very much associated with poor living and malnutrition, and uh, TB. Right, which were not considered scandalous, whereas the things to do with sex were considered. Yes, like when you want to blame uh, working class for the, the horrific living conditions, you just blame it, blame it on themselves. On their bad sexuality. Right. So, Halan, I have been thinking as I'm reading your book, the making of new notions of masculinity and femininity, sexuality, labor processes, everyday tensions, but at the same time, bondings that's fluidity within the society. We're seeing like mixing of um, al-Mahale people with people coming from elsewhere. To what extent do you think this is a moment of making of a new Egyptian hood, new nationalism in 1920s and 30s in an industrial context? We have an issue about uh, with Egyptian historiography that uh, heavily relays on print and discourses that appeared in print produced by the Afandia and mostly uh, Cairo-centric. And according to this, actually, workers, uh, industrial workers and industrialization contributed to the formulation of Egyptian nationalism since workers were a big part of the nationalist struggle against colonization and the British occupation, etc. The work I am engaging with actually is kind of sort of relatively challenging that or counter to that. It focuses more on uh, the ordinary uh, daily life drama how people lived their lives. And it doesn't mean that people in Mahala didn't care about Egyptian nationalism or independence. Actually, there are rounds of uh, nationalist protests. They were a big part of 1919 revolution. They also engaged with nationalist politics in a, in a way or another throughout uh, interwar period. However, Workers didn't always act on the base of on the base that we are building the modern nation. The, building the modern nation, this is the discourse that adopted by Egyptian capitalists uh, while they were building these large factories. It was nice, neat discourse that fit into nationalist narrative that we are doing this to achieve economic independence. Uh, it's nationalist company or it's nationalist factories, but. In reality, it was not the case. In reality, it's like any other industrialist, capitalist project. It's wanted to generate profit for shareholders. And they were very successful over that. And big part of their success was on the expenses of workers, the high level of exploitation of workers and maybe making their life very much horrific. 
workers themselves, their self-awareness or identity, I see them in the daily life drama. They cared about their sense of being respected masculine, respected man, their sense of uh, being a productive worker in terms of that can get paid, uh, their sense of trying to keep their dignity and avoid humiliation inside the factory and also inside the urban space, uh, the hostile urban space. I see them working and reworking their geographic-based uh, identity. Like initially, probably they would identify themselves based on villages they are coming from. Gradually, they would be uh, more belonging to the factory or to the city. When it comes to nationalist discourses, over time, they learned the game too. The company masks uh, the horrific condition that puts its worker on on the claim that it is nationalist, it's contributing to the nationalist independence. When workers started to talk, particularly to the press, about the horrific conditions, they also tried to play the, the same nationalist card. They would point at non-nationalist practices as hiring foreign workers and foreign administrators with lots of privileges and high payment. They would accuse some of their foreign uh, administrators of trying to mess up the nationalist productive of the company. They, particularly at moment of large strikes, also they talk to Egyptian people. We are part of that Egyptian nation. Why we don't benefit from that? Why actually you don't come to our side and show solidarity? And they won. They won 1947. Workers won the sympathy of the Egyptian nation. And there was kind of sort of discourse about belonging to that Egyptian Egyptian nation. The importance of here, like the daily life drama, particularly on local level, could complicate and counter that kind of sort of neat, clear-cut narrative of nationalism nationalism that's mostly Cairo-based. This is so nice, too, because it reminds us that nationalism, you know, when you read in the Egyptian press about nationalism, that those are actually a set of political claims that are being made about people who it doesn't necessarily represent. So when workers are being invoked in the press as nationalist figures, that's actually potentially not at all descriptive of their actual daily lives um, or the notions of identity that actually drive social life in a place like Al-Mahal al-Kabra. So I think that's a great note to end on. So Hanan Hamad, once again, for our listeners, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. And I really encourage everybody to go out and get a copy of the book, Industrial Sexuality. You can also check out our bibliography from this episode, which we will post on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. And please join us on the web. Join us on Facebook with our now over 30,000 listeners. And stay tuned for forthcoming episodes on gender and sexuality and many other topics. So that's all for this episode. Take care.